Welcome to the Every Nation Rosebank Church Podcast. At our church, we honor God, make disciples, and transform nations. For more information about our church, visit everynationrosebank.org and don't forget to subscribe. I have the privilege of sharing the the sermon tonight. I'm really looking forward to it. We're continuing in our value series, um, which this DNA value sermon series, if you haven't been around, we're looking at the values that we have as every nation, Johannesburg, and talking about how we live them out. Because as I'm sure you're aware, the church is not this building. It is the people that come and dwell in this building on a Sunday that we make up the church. So As we begin, I really want us to um, start actually with a point of reflection. So where you are, just take a moment to think to yourself for a minute. But I want you to think about what is one of your favorite scriptures? Scripture that you really like. And think about why. Why do you like that verse or that scripture? Was there, you know, a moment that you had with God where he spoke to you about it? Um, a circumstance that really stood out to you, just, yeah, think about that for a second. And my last reflection or question is, when was the last time that you had that kind of moment? That you felt as you were reading scripture, God really speaking to you, you felt something maybe coming alive for you. When was the last time? We're talking about the value of being word-based tonight, which is a really important value. And I wanted us to start with reflecting on this because we need to remember how valuable the word is, right? If we don't know the value of the word, we're not going to make time for the word. Um, More importantly for many of us, if we forget the value of the word, we forget to make time for the word. And so, you know, I think many of us, or if not all of us, have these experiences, right, where the Word speaks to us and it, and it ministers to us, but sometimes we forget about those moments and those experiences, and we forget to prioritize and plan for the Word. So as we talk about the value tonight of being Word-based, let's just start with that, remembering how much you individually value the Word. Remind yourself of that. Remind yourself of what it means to you. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word, Lord God. I thank you that your word is so powerful. It is so impactful, Lord God. There's nothing that anybody from up here can say or do to um, make it do more than what it already does. It is incredible in and of itself. And I pray that, Holy Spirit, as we talk about the word, that you would remind us, Lord God, of the, the role that the word needs to play in our lives, how we can live it out. I pray that you would individually speak to each of us, convicting each of us as we need for how to do this better, how to live this out. Holy Spirit, we want to respond to what you're saying. We don't want to be hearers of the word only. We want to be doers of the word. We want to be people that meet up with you in heaven and that you can say, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so I pray that as we reflect on some of these things tonight, that you would really establish within us a truth to live from, how we can live out your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, okay, word-based, right? That's what we're talking about tonight. It's a really important value in our church. And so what does it mean to be word-based? 
So the base of something is like its most fundamental bottom layer, as you can see from my beautiful icons on the screen. That something's base, right, its bottommost layer, is what everything else is basically supported by and is held up on. And when we're talking about being word-based people, it really means that every single part of our lives is based on the word, that's established on what we see in scripture. The word, we, it's really just short for the word of God, what we refer to as the Bible, okay? And so being word-based people and being a word-based church is that every single action, every single plan, every single thing that we do is based off of what we see in the Bible, which means that nothing, like, it, there's nothing that we do in our lives that is based on something other than the Bible, right? That's the inference of being word-based. In terms of the church, as a value at every nation, Rosebank, it means that from every part of how we plan things, you know, our leadership structures, our discipleship path, the materials that we produce, the songs that we sing and write, everything that we do, we make clear that it's based on what we see in scripture. And we make very clear that we limit, that we don't let things that are not scriptural influence what we do. But when it comes to us individually, right, that has to be the same. That everything that we do can be very clearly based off of scripture. That if somebody were to sort of drill down into all of the different parts of your life, that the bottommost layer that they'd find there is scripture and the word. If they were to unpack what's happening in your life, that they would see the Bible everywhere. That's what it means. It means that we are very clear and strict about what is influencing our decisions and our actions because we want to make sure that the base of everything is the word. I think many of us have like different bases, you know, that there's a section that's like based off of influences and social media of our lives and there's a section that's like word-based and there's a section that's not really word-based but church pressure-based, you know, that there's all of these these things that we stitch together and try to hold together on our own that actually isn't really coherent and we feel the disjuncture of that and we feel that in our lives and reminding ourselves of what it means to be word-based is also that opportunity to reflect on what really you are basing the different things of your life off of. Your career, your relationships, your passions, the time that you spend, where you spend your time. We know that the Bible speaks about the spring box, so those are fine. But other than that, no, it doesn't. That was a joke, okay? I'm, that was a joke. So in terms of how we're going to talk through tonight, I, I do want to start with talking a little bit about why do we trust the word? Because I think it's really important that we start there. And then we'll talk a little bit about um, how we engage with the word and the benefits of engaging with the word. And then lastly, about this application. How do we live it out? So... I'm going to start by, you know, what is the word and why should we trust it? I think there's a really important role that our intellect plays in us being able to apply things. When you understand something, then you know how to apply it and to live it out. There's a lot of research around this topic, and so I'm going to try and cover over it, but not go into as much research and detail that you would be able to find, because it's already a long sermon, so I need to be careful, but um, please feel free to go and research this. So when you're talking about the word and the scriptures, we're talking about the 66 books that comprise the Bible. They are what we call the canon of scripture, okay? Not like a gun, 
but like canon, C-A-N-O-N. And it means the list of books that basically made it through the vetting process to be included in scripture. That's essentially what it means. Um, so how, why do we trust that this list of books is actually God speaking to us? I'm going to look at this from three perspectives. If, if you think about sort of like um, putting together, you know, an argument and like, in, let me use the analogy of like a court case, you know, how do, how does evidence or, or an argument convince like a judge or a jury that somebody did something, you know, and there's three different kinds of evidence that I think would be really important. There's eyewitnesses, right, eyewitness accounts, evidence from the scene that like places somebody there or that demonstrates that something happened, but there also has to be a coherent story, a reliable story that says this person had motive, had opportunity, whatever, and they committed this action. And so this for me is how I also think about it when it comes to three different perspectives on why we trust the Bible. The first, evidence from the scene. The Bible remains historically accurate, okay? It's been verified by other documents, and it continues to remain um, a document that historians use in conjunction with other historical documents. So what I mean by evidence from the scene is that when it comes to the stories of the Bible, there are I don't want to say hundreds, I don't know the number, but there are so many archaeological findings that back up what we see in Scripture, that confirm the stories of the Bible, right? There is, um, like, just a recent example that I was reading about while I was preparing. In 2021, this particular Jewish archaeologist, he's been working on this dig of this ancient city for many, many years, and they finally sort of figured out that they're pretty sure that this is the kingdom of Judah, where King David reigned, and that they can place it and figure that out. They already know where Hebron is, but that's just one example in terms of uncovering places that we see in Scripture. There are things like they found um, an Egyptian chariot wheel at the bottom of the Red Sea, which is pretty far from where Pharaoh you know, was. Things like that. There's so many archaeological findings that confirm and back up what we see in Scripture. Um, this archaeologist Nelson Glueck, he said it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Scores of archaeological findings have been made which confirm in clear outline or exact detail historical statements in the Bible. So from an accuracy perspective, there's an accuracy about the Bible that we can trust, okay? That it's, it doesn't seem made up, it doesn't seem like it's figurative, you know, and people have elaborated on it. So that's one kind of evidence. But the other are the eyewitness accounts, both from the perspective of the, the people that wrote the Bible, that the way that it was written was that it was written as historical account. It wasn't written, you know, the, when we're talking about the, his, the stories, it was written um, like this is what God did. This is how Jesus did the miracle. It, that's how it was written. The people who wrote the Bible stood up for what they wrote and defended what they wrote. But the other form of eyewitnesses are the millions and millions of lives that have been changed by the Bible. And so the combination of how people wrote it, spoke about it, defended it, not both at the time and ever since, people speaking about it, defending it, giving their lives for it, what that testifies to is that this book is not just a historical book, but that it's a divine book, yeah. that it's God-inspired, <laughs> that what we see is that people are writing about this is what God did, and that more and more lives confirm that over time, that it's God that speaks 
to us through this book. The Bible is very powerful by nature, okay? If you read it, it will convict you. It will change you. If you do not want to be convicted, then you shouldn't read it. It it has power in it by its very nature. And the eyewitnesses of, you know, the last 2,000 and before that, (laughs) thousands of years, confirm this. There is also this divine element that we see in Scripture by the nature of its authorship. The Bible was written over a period of 1,500 years, when you take from the beginning to the end. It was written by more than 40 people. Well, I think it's about 40 people, 66 books. And let's just think about that for a moment, okay? What do you think the world was like in the year 1000 AD? Since then, we've had the Dark Ages, you know, the Middle Ages. We've had dynasties in China versus the kingdoms in Europe versus people in Africa and how they lived. I mean, that's a very long time. But that was 1000 years ago right? Let alone 1,500 years ago. The difference in a place and in a people group over that period of time is drastic. And yet, even though the book of, you know, Deuteronomy versus the book of John was written with such a huge time between it, the gods of those two books, it's the same. And it's a very clear coherence in who the God is of the Bible, how he speaks and manifests to people, his character, his nature, it's a very clear account. And it doesn't, um, there's, there's diversity in it, right? We see the differences of the time periods, but it doesn't fall apart, it doesn't not make sense. And that is an eyewitness to the divine nature of the book. That it's not people that are putting the story together that it's God that's weaving the story together. Um, I just want to tell another quick story here. So you may recognize this story, but there, there are people that will tell you, right, that the kinds of miraculous stories that you see in the Bible are like, you know, a little bit man-made, right? That somebody was like, well, Jesus came into the temple, and then he did this, and the people are adding in these stories because they wanted to believe in something. There's a man named Charles Colson, otherwise known as Chuck Colson. Let me tell you about who he is. Charles Colson served as special counsel to U.S. President Richard Nixon. Notoriously, he was caught in the middle of the Watergate scandal. Okay? He pled guilty to a bunch of charges. He served seven months in prison in Alabama. And over the period, like from the trial through to his sentencing and then spending his time or serving his time, he became a Christian and he met Jesus. And he was described as having a very radical life change. Um, he founded a nonprofit ministry. He wrote 30 books. I mean, he did a bunch of things because, you know, he didn't go back into politics. He, his life was changed after that. And he made the statement, I know the resurrection is a fact and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. Then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. And it's, you know, things like this where we see that the the people that wrote it and defended the Bible, and since then, you know, martyrs across across the globe, 
that, that the lives that they live and the way that they died testifies to the divine and powerful nature of Scripture. Um, let me just go back. So the last point is about the reliable account, okay? How we trust the story. And I'll just, I'll try and cover this briefly, but essentially this is about the fact that the story of the Bible hasn't changed over time. You know, in our, if I were to tell like Zach a story, who would tell Zelis a story, who would tell Impo the story, who would tell Asher the story, I mean, by the time I ask Asher about the story, it's going to be different, right? Because that's how we are. When we tell stories, we add and change our own things. So it's that idea of like, how do we know that, that the Bible, even though so ancient, is reliable and is trustworthy in what people wrote? And, um, you know, first and foremost, the fact is, and I, I spoke about the canon before, the list of these are the books that qualify as holy and, and to be included in the Bible, they went through a vetting process, okay? There are books that were written that are, you know, similar time periods. There's books that are about the history of the Israel, Israeli nation, about the, you know, the holy people of God that talk about some of the things in the Bible, but they were not given, they were not viewed as having the same authority and the same divinity as the other books, and so they were excluded from the Jewish Bible. They're you know, historical books, but they're not the same as the divine books, right? The books that were considered to be holy enough and clearly have God speaking through them. The vetting process is like how divine the book, the qualities of the books are, who wrote the books, and the reception of the books um, in, for the New Testament by the churches. You know, even with the New Testament, there were a lot of other writings about Jesus and other things that were happening. And so the, there was a vetting process. Was this written by somebody and who was an apostle or related, you know, in some form, connected to Jesus, that the churches were given these books, that it was coherently received among the churches and verified by the other letters written by the apostles? And books that did not meet that criteria were excluded from the canon, and so there's a trustworthiness in that we know that the books of the Bible were put in there because they were vetted, right? That it wasn't just anything that was included, anything that mentioned Jesus or God. It, they, they, they had to be verified. And in terms of like the reliability, I mean, because of the fact that these books were shared, because of the fact that they were considered holy, there is an incredible accuracy that we have. It's probably the most accurate historical document in the world. Um, the second most accurate historical document when it comes to the number of manuscripts. You see, it's how they verify that the story hasn't changed. How many copies were there that we can look at all of the different copies and see that the story is the same. And the second most one is Homer's Iliad. There's 643 manuscripts. That's quite a lot. There's hundreds of manuscripts that people can look at and confirm that what Homer wrote in this time, because it's not all written at the same time, it's copies that are made, and then they can see that the story is the same. For the New Testament books, in Greek alone, there are 5,600 manuscripts that we have. In other languages, Syriac, Latin, there's 19,000 manuscripts that confirm to us that what we have written today is exactly what was written 2,000 years ago. It's, it's accurate. Even more than that, we have you know, Bible scholars that continue to verify its accuracy. It's the religious account that is continuously almost vetted and verified. And so we see like, 
you know, the divine nature of Scripture, the reliable accuracy of Scripture, the fact that it's historically verified. And this is why we trust that the Bible is not a selection of historical books, that it is the Word of God speaking to us. And I think it's important that we know that and that we can explain this when somebody asks us, you know, how do you know? How do you know that the Bible is real? To Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We know that the Bible is reliable and trustworthy and that it is God himself who speaks to us through it. And it is the only thing that we have that tells us what we know today about God. It's the Bible. I want to you know, talk a little bit now about how we engage with the Bible. Um, John 1, verse 1 to 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You see, the scriptures that we read... The Word of God was with God and was God from the very beginning. When you are reading that scripture, it is an eternal scripture that existed with God in the beginning. The revelation that we have through scripture is not man-made. It is God's revelation to us. And it's the light that we need in the darkness that the darkness cannot overcome. And so how we engage with the Word should not be to read it as a historical document. It should be to read it as engaging the presence of God, the eternity of God, and that's how we meet him. But it's important that we know that the Bible, like I've said, it's the only verified account that we have of God, right? It's gone through this vetting process. It's everything that we know about the Holy Spirit, everything that we know about how God speaks, who God has made us to be, the characteristics of God, all of that comes from the Bible. It's the only thing that we have vetted and verified tells us about God, which means that it needs to be the primary thing, that everything else that we experience needs to be verified by the Bible, okay? Our prophetic words need to be verified by the Bible. Our spiritual experiences, our dreams, the moments where God's speaking to us, we have to verify that by the Bible because otherwise we don't know if it's God, The Bible is the primary revelation of God that we have. And because we know we can trust it, everything else has to be secondary. We do want spiritual experiences. We do want God to speak to us. We do want prophetic words, but we have to hold them as secondary, that they are not our primary revelation of God. The Bible is the primary revelation of God. And we can only know if I've had a dream and that how do I know if that's God or not? Well, does it match up with the God of the Bible? Does it match up with what I read about in Scripture, right? It's not, I had a dream, therefore this is what God must be. No, it's, does this concur with the God of the Bible? Otherwise, it's not God. Because there are other things that influence us. There are other things. And so we need to hold all of those things in tension, (laughs) To know that our, the pressures from my parents, my own desires and pressures, you know, the influences on social media, there's all these other things that come and confuse us. There's the enemy. There is a very real enemy out there that wants to deceive you and lie to you. And so how do you know 
whether or not what you're hearing and feeling and your experience is God or not. It has to match up with the Bible. So some of the ways that we can not do this, I'll give some examples. One of the ways is when we don't take into account the whole of the Bible. If you don't know the whole of Scripture, right, then you can very easily be hear a teaching about one scripture that's actually false, but not be able to pick that up because you don't know scripture well enough to verify it. So for example, there's 2 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, it's 1 Corinthians 7, speaks about marriage, okay? And there's a part of the chapter that says that if you are married to an unbeliever, that you shouldn't divorce them. If somebody takes that scripture and says, well, you see, I should remain with my unsafe boyfriend, girlfriend. In fact, you know, I should marry them. I should commit to this person. That's what it says in the scripture. Start of that process, living with them, you know, make sure that this is going to work out, right? That kind of thinking clearly demonstrates that the person hasn't read the rest of 1 Corinthians 7 because it starts out talking about that very type of thing. 1 Corinthians 6 also speaks about sexual sin. I mean, it's, and that's just an example, but it's the point that we, if we don't know Scripture well enough to know whether or not a teaching is accurate, we can be misled. Yeah. That the first way that we engage with the Word is by knowing all of it <laughs> and taking the whole counsel of Scripture. The second way is when we prioritize our spiritual experiences above the Word. And it happens more often than we realize, okay? We're all about spiritual experiences. They're uh, fun. <laughs> and they are amazing. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't embrace them and we shouldn't pursue them. You know, the Bible says that above all, I wish that you would all prophesy. Also from 1 Corinthians. So, so we do want to have these moments where we're hearing from God. But like I've said, how do we know that it's God? right? We verify it by scripture. But it goes a little bit deeper than that. And I'll, I'll give an example. Um, there's a couple that I know that were part of a church that uh, essentially the pastor of the church, he, had, uh, he was a very spiritual person and he had some really powerful experiences with God where he, you know, encountered God in various like ways in the courtroom of this and in the place of this. And what he did was that he basically taught the people in the church that that's how you encounter God about various things. That when you're dealing with this type of issue, you need to go into this courtroom. It had to do with like spiritual authority as believers. This is how we claim that authority. We do it like this. And they pursued and really prioritized having these experiences and engaging with God, you know, in their minds, in their spirits, in this way. Um, what happened with this particular couple was that they went through some very difficult times where when they were engaging with God in that particular courtroom, it wasn't working. And the things were not changing like they used to change. And what happened? Essentially, the God of their experience changed. And what they were holding on to to get them through the difficult times was the experience, how God was going to speak to them in the experience. When we hold on to the word of God, we know that it's not about our experience. It's not about our feeling. We go through, you know, good times and bad times, and we see the people in the Bible going through the same thing, easy times, difficult times, and we can see how the word of God that was spoken to this prophet was manifested 70 years later. 
we see how spiritual experiences do manifest in their appropriate time. And so our attitude when we hold on to the word of God versus holding on to spiritual experiences is different because our attitude then is whether or not the feeling is good or bad, I'm gonna hold on to this truth. The only thing that I know that is true is the Bible. The Bible is therefore the truth that I hold on to. And my experience, even though it was profound and powerful, cannot be what I hold on to. It has to be secondary. That's what I mean by it being secondary. It's still a good experience, but it's not the anchor for my soul. The anchor for my soul is the scripture, the promise that I read in the Bible. And so we have to be really disciplined and strict about how we are thinking about and holding on to our spiritual experiences, our prophetic words, the moments that we have with God. We absolutely value them, but we look at the scripture part, the word part, and that is what we hold on to right? What we see in the Bible. It's the only verified, vetted truth. Um, Okay, so we made that point. So what are some of the benefits of reading and engaging with Scripture, right? Hebrews 4. I'm going to use Scriptures to talk about this because, like I said already, this is primary. (laughs) This is what tells us everything. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. The Bible has this incredible power in it that it tells us what we're really thinking. (laughs) I don't know if you've ever had this type of experience where suddenly you realize that there was like a deception that you had in your mind, something you believed about yourself that's not true. And you see it when you engage with scripture. Even more than that, that two-edged sword piercing the, the soul and spirit also shows us what is true, who God is, what he is speaking over you. And that's where it exposes the lies and the shame and the fear. And it brings about this powerful truth of this is who God is. And so one of the benefits of how we engage the word is that we engage it in order to understand and and know the truth. God, that you would reveal to me where there's deception in my heart, where there are things that I don't fully understand. The Bible also says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? Jeremiah 17. That it's, that we know that, you know, we can get caught up in, in, in false things, in trends, in whatever, you know, and that the Bible exposes to us, this is where you've believed a lie about yourself. Um, And this is what the truth is. Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. How sweet are your words to my taste. The Bible is so beautiful. And when you read the scriptures, it speaks to that beauty, that magnificence. There's something so amazing about it. And what it does, it's like that's how we get understanding. The Bible teaches us and shows us how we need to live our lives. What are the kinds of priorities that God has? What are the things that he values? Because at the end of my life, when I meet with God in heaven, I wanna make sure that I've lived the life the way that he would, right? That if I've lived it my own way, then he's gonna be like, listen, bro, there was some issues. 
So it, I have to understand what are the things that God values, what are the things that he would do, that he would want. And through reading it, that's where we get understanding. It shows us what is false and what is true. You know, when it comes to things like purpose, there's so many things that, that want to speak into that space. You know, what are the careers of this decade that are popular? Because that changes. <laughs> But, but, the, but the things that we think are valuable at the time, the pressures that we feel in terms of financial stability and security, you know, and um, how, we, how we appear to people, those kinds of things are the pressures that we feel. And when we read scripture and we see how God defines purpose and we're able to submit all of these other things to us, it brings clarity, it brings understanding, it brings relief. And that's where the word sheds light on our path, that this is kind of what you should be doing. This is the way that you should be going. These are not the things that you should be listening to. These are not the voices that should be influencing you. And so it gives us understanding. It gives us direction because it helps us to really assess our values. It helps us to assess the voices speaking to us. Early in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. If you're trying to live a pure life, there you go. That's how. By guarding it according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. There's this wisdom that we gain from scripture, right? That it, it's how we learn good judgment and knowledge by engaging with the word and engaging with it in humility <laughs> that we receive that the word is what teaches us good judgment and good knowledge. It teaches us how to be pure, you know, that when we're feeling afflicted, that how do we figure out what to do? We can come back to keeping God's word and it brings that peace, it brings that order in our lives. I think he's not working anymore. There we go. Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The Bible gives us, by giving us truth, it helps us to discern the thoughts you're having. If you are this person, if you are who you say you are, if God is good enough, it helps us to discern whether or not that's truth or a lie. Whether or not the doubts that we have about ourselves are from the enemy or our conviction. The word helps us to discern that. And then the word gives us the weapons that we need, the power that we need to fight the lies of the enemy. When he's trying to sow doubt and shame and fear in your mind, that the word gives you the defense that you need to know, well, actually, that lie is not true because this is what God says about me. So knowing who God says about you in the word can help you to defend the attacks and the barrage of what the world says you should be. You know, this is my truth. Well, what is the truth, right? The truth is what God says, and it helps you to figure out exactly that in a world where everyone is telling you that you should decide something. It's, you know, moreover, if we look at what Jesus said here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That in the up and down of provision or lack of difficult times or easy times, that our bread, our daily circumstances and substance, that's not what we live by. We live by the word of God. The thing that we hold on to to sustain us, 
that that's the role that the word plays. But it's the role that the word plays if that's how you treat the word, if that's how you prioritize the word and engage the word. It can be something that we, we don't prioritize sufficiently, right? And then we don't have that same staying power almost, anchorage for our souls, when we don't hold the word as what we live by, not bread alone, but by the word of God. So how do we live word-based lives? The first point here, it's a real like old Bible, I mean old church type of thing. I, but I think it's really important. Knowing and memorizing scripture is really important if you are going to live a word-based life. If somebody is going to come and ask you about why you chose a certain direction in your life, why you decided to do something, and the word is not very clearly there, it's probably because when you're making that decision, you didn't know enough scripture to base it off of the word. How can you make decisions that align with the word when you don't know it? And I promise you that we have to make hundreds of decisions all the time without enough time to go and reference, you know, where does the Bible speak about this, right? And that's where memorizing scripture becomes important because it has to then be within you so that it can feed your decision making, that it can input into your decision making, into your content that you put on social media, right? And I'm not saying that you put scriptures necessarily only on social media, but what I'm saying is those kinds of little decisions that we make, they get influenced by a lot of things. And if we don't memorize scripture, then we don't have that as any role to play in that decision making. We have to memorize scripture. We have to know the whole counsel of scripture in order for us to live a word-based life. It really is as simple as that. John 14, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. If you don't know scripture, you're really not giving the Holy Spirit a lot to work off of to bring to remembrance the thing that Jesus is going to say to you, okay? Because... When it comes to, like I've said before, the only way that we can verify that the thought that I'm having is if, you know, from God or not is if you know it's from Scripture or not. That's the only way. It's the only vetted truth. We cannot prioritize our personal revelation above Scripture. So if I don't know what Jesus said, then the thought that I'm having, how am I going to know if it was Jesus or not? Okay? It really is how we have to go about things. I'm so grateful that I was in children's church from a young age and that sure, there was a lot of rote memorization, but it benefited me now because what I was memorizing is not, you know, somebody's theorem about some maths thing, sorry maths people, but that's not what I memorized. I memorized something that was able to speak life to me in a difficult decision-making process. And so there really is a power in memorizing scripture. If you're going to live a word-based life, if you're going to be confident that your decisions are reflecting God and the scriptures, you have to know and memorize scripture. I'm not talking about, you know, knowing where to reference things from that, that you know, like all of the verses. You know what I mean? It's not about impressing people. It's about knowing what God said. Examine why you don't prioritize engaging the word. You see, I think that there's something that we have to reflect on when it comes to when it becomes difficult to read the word because it does become difficult it's not always an easy fun thing and in your the course of your christian life there are going to be times that it's really great and easy and there's going to be times that it's really a challenge which i think applies to most things 
But the first thing here, right, we have to read our Bible as a spiritual discipline. And it's called a discipline for a reason. It's not for the funds, always, you know? Like eating, eating is something that's driven by feeling, right? You feel hungry and you eat. What you eat needs more discipline, but eating in itself is something that we typically don't have to contest with, that it's driven by our feelings. So we don't have to argue very much or convince ourselves that we need to eat something. But discipline is the exact opposite of that. It's in spite of the feeling. When the feeling is good, when the feeling is ugh, when the feeling is bad, whatever the feeling is, that we choose to do the action because of the discipline of doing it. That's the hard part. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I am not always disciplined with things that I'm supposed to be disciplined with, right? And so that's where we have to, if we're talking about the word and being word-based, we have to actually look at our discipline. Do we have it as a discipline? Is it something that we're willing to put the time into? Because it's, it's really going to affect whether or not you can live a word-based life. Um, this quote that's on the screen here, it's from a discipleship book that we have at Every Nation called The Purple Book. I don't know if you've heard of it. We don't talk about it as much in Every Nation Rosebank. It's like the black sheep of the discipleship books. But it's a really great book, actually. It's like... It's, it's a Bible study book, and it talks about different elements of the Christian faith, but it does it in a Bible study fashion, that you have to go and study the scriptures to find what does the Bible say about these different um, elements. So this is a quote from that book. It says, if someone is deprived of food and water for an extended period of time, their physical body will weaken and eventually die. There is a spiritual parallel. The word of God is our spiritual food and water. As surely as we will die physically without food and water, we will die spiritually without God's word. If we don't, if we're weakened, if we're malnourished, right? How many of us are malnourished in this room spiritually? When we're malnourished, we're not in a position that we're able to defend ourselves against attacks that come against us. We're not even in a position where we're able to discern what is God's will and what is an attack. Because we don't have the strength within us to, to figure that out and to fight that. And so without having that discipline of the word of God, we won't have what we need to figure out on a regular basis what God is saying, what his will is, and whether or, uh, how I fight the attacks of the enemy. But the other component to why we don't prioritize engaging in the word is if we have a heart issue. Consider if you have a heart issue that keeps you from meaningfully engaging in God's word. There's different kinds of heart issues that we can have. It can be bitterness, it can be unforgiveness for something that had happened or not happened in our lives that we blame God for. This has been a challenge for me this year. Prioritizing time in the word has been a real challenge. And when they asked me to preach the scripture, I mean the sermon, I was like immediately overwhelmed because our instinct is to rely on the things that we're good at. <laughs> um, and this is the beauty of ministry is that God calls us. You know, we don't go to a connect group because we're feeling good that week and we're feeling enough that week. We don't serve because we're feeling good and enough that week, right? We do these things because we know that it's not about us. It's about God. So, when, so this is an area where I feel like I've had a heart issue. My heart issue has been self-reliance, has been that when I've read the word, I've held it emotionally at a distance because I'm doing okay. You know, I don't, I don't, 
It's not that it's not good. It's like, yeah, I know the scripture. I remember the song from Bible, you know, Sunday school. And then it's, I don't necessarily need to examine my heart right now because I think I'm fine. That judgment, I think I'm fine. Sounds a lot like, I think I should eat the apple from this tree, you know, that God told us not to eat. It's that judgment of myself that I don't need God in this space, right? And so that's just my example. But when it comes to whether or not we prioritize and make time for the word, we have to look at our discipline and what's affecting it, but we have to look at our heart and what is keeping us from it. Are there things that we're prioritizing as more important? You know, I, I really need to make sure that I don't mess up at work. I really need to improve and impress my, bro- my bosses. I really need to um, make time for this thing. And all of those things that we really need to make time for cloud out the real thing that we need to make time for. Your relationship with God, your intimacy level with God is the only thing that you're going to take with you to eternity. And so what you do about it here on earth matters. What you do about it and what you invest in matters. And so when it comes to us looking at how we live as word-based people, it's not about only the discipline. And this is why this point is up there. It's not just about making the time. It's about how I engage with God in that time. Am I receiving from him? Am I being vulnerable with him? Am I bringing my heart to him? Am I letting his word penetrate soul and spirit and speak to me? Or am I holding it at a distance, doing it for the sake of doing it? because then it's not going to be the basis of my life. It's not going to be the basis of my decisions. There was this one day that I was driving to work. I think I was driving. I was praying about stuff, and I got distracted, and I started thinking about other things, and then I was almost at the destination, and I was like, oh, yeah, sorry, Jesus, I was praying. And I so clearly, I don't know if you've ever done that. Maybe it's just me. But so clearly, I've heard Jesus say to me, like, yeah, you've lost your perseverance now. Because you get, you've let other things come into play in your life. And so you don't even have the perseverance for this 20 minutes of prayer, this 20 minutes of Bible reading. And it struck me so much that, you know, it's, it's that thing of where we, we allow things to shift and to shift and to shift to the point that we lose our perseverance to stay in God's presence, to stay engaged with him. And honestly, at the, like with all of the days that I have to live on earth, no matter how many or how few, I would much rather have that I don't lose my intimacy with God through those days. That the pressure that's applied to my life, that I want it to be meaningful. I want it to produce the diamond of intimacy with God, you know? Because pressure that's applied to coal can produce diamonds, but pressure that's applied to clay doesn't really produce that much, except an earthquake maybe. And so the call that we need for our lives are the disciplines. Because then when the pressure comes, then the call can press on those things and can make something beautiful out of them. So we're going to close now. And in conclusion, I really want us to, to reflect again. We started off the evening reflecting on why we value Scripture. What are some of the things that we love about the Word? What are the, some of the things that we you know, that that can remind us to make time for it, to value it, to approach it well. But I also think that it's important for us to reflect on what it looks like to live a word-based life. We get so focused as people on the things that I need to do, right? My actions that I need to put in. And we forget to think about what the outcome should look like at the end. 
and looking at the outcome can really help us to determine what the right actions are. I work in a field called monitoring and evaluation and so this is kind of like how we think in that field is because we're all about trying to measure whether or not a program is working, if it's achieving its goals. And so we're not just looking at what's going in but what is actually coming out. How do we know that something is working? And so I'm going to put a list on the screen of things that it's just me, right? There's many things that can be added or changed from this. But these are things to me that demonstrate that you live a word-based life. There'll be two columns. One will be outputs. That's the short-term things. An output is like there's an immediate action and then there's an output. And then there's outcomes, the long-term things. And it's just for you to reflect on. If you look at these things, does it tell you that I need to make a change in how word-based my life is? So this is my list. Do you have regular devotional time, right? That's an output from an immediate action that somebody looks at your life and can see that there's regular time, that the word is referenced or quoted when you're giving input or advice to somebody, and that your actions, the actions that we see in your life are immediate things that we see from scripture, like from Acts 2, listening to the apostles' teaching, breaking bread, meeting with other believers, talking about God, serving people instead of lording your authority over them, right? That there's actions that we see from scripture in your life. But the longer term outcomes are that you're described as a person that's loving, that's joyful, that's peaceful, that's patient, kind, gentle, good, faithful, self-controlled. And that there's a confidence that comes from how you speak about God, right? Because when you've got that discipline, when you engage with God in a humble way and he speaks to you, then there is a place that you're able to say, I know what God has said to me about this. I know what God thinks about this. There's a confidence about the fact that my decisions are word-based. And so we're going to close with a moment of consecration. And Pastor Greg, I'm going to ask you to come and help with that. So just where you are, maybe close your eyes if you want to, but this is a space for you to have a moment of consecration. To think about whether or not your life, if you are to drill down as to how you live your life and all the different components of it, can you see scripture as the basis of every part of your life? And where do we need to consecrate our lives? Where do we need to consecrate things once again to say, Jesus, there's other voices and other influences, other priorities I've put instead of you. And I want to put you again at the center. Amen. Jess, thanks for that. That was like an encyclopedia on reading the Bible. And I can feel that our hearts were impacted, right? Just the only thing I want to add as a devotional thing is, you know what I've struggled with reading the Bible? is shame and guilt. Jess was reminding me. <laughs> because you know what we do as Christians? I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to read in the morning. I'm going to read in the evening. And then the first two days, like you do it. And then you wake up the next Monday and you realize you haven't read the Bible for four days. And then you hate yourself. And guess what happens? You don't read it again for six months. <laughs> do you know what? Reading the Bible isn't about ticking boxes. Reading the Bible isn't actually about reading the Bible. It's about knowing God. Reading your Bible should be for relationship. And we should do it regularly. It should be a discipline. But when shame gets involved in it, we start putting that shame on God, and that's how we view Him. When the whole point of reading the Bible is to know Him, 
If you don't read your Bible, how are you going to know what He thinks and feels, what He says, what He wants? And so what I've learned to do in my life, and it happens, right, even as a pastor, because there's so many places in my day where I engage with Scripture, but I still have to do my own personal devotions, right? And so I wake up on Wednesday and I realize it's been three days since I actually just read the Bible and let it convict me. And, in, and I feel the shame. But instead of feeling the shame, I just go to God because guess what? He's waiting for me. See, He doesn't care. He doesn't care. God isn't keeping a record of how often you read the Bible. He's keeping a record of how much you're receiving it into your heart. And He's always waiting. Eugene Peterson, who wrote the message paraphrase of the Bible, he was, he's a world-renowned Bible scholar. And um, he wrote a book on how to read the Bible. And he said some amazing things. He said, the Bible is the only book in the world that knows you're there. Because Jesus is the living Word of God, right? When Jesse was talking about, if you don't want to be convicted, don't read your Bible. That's another reason why we need to deal with our shame. Conviction isn't about shame. It's about who you are in God and who He is in you. And Eugene Peterson put it this way. He said, when you read the Bible, it reads you back. <laughs> While you are reading the living Word of God, He is reading you back and showing you who you are in Him and who He is in you. And so if there's been any shame in your devotional life, if you've done what I've done where you suddenly realize I didn't read and now you don't want to go back because you think God's going to shout at you, can you close your eyes for a moment? Lord Jesus, we're not going to make up who you are. We're going to let your word reveal to us who you are. And who you are is a father who is always waiting for us, who is always ready to meet with us, Lord. And no matter how long it's been since we read our Bible, God, we are going to come back tonight. We're going to open it up. We're going to read it. And we're going to let you reveal yourself to us. And make that decision in your heart that when you realize you haven't read it, you're immediately going to set aside some time and you're going to just sit and read. That's what we're going to do, Jesus. Make that commitment in your heart. Thank you that you receive that commitment. And I pray for every one of us that we will open those pages, open the app on our phone and read. And that as we read, life will manifest in us. Truth will manifest in us. Hope will manifest in us, Lord God. And Holy Spirit, your promises is that when we read the Bible, you will come and enlighten it to us. You will come and teach us. You will come and reveal Jesus to us, Lord. And so tonight, Lord, I just want to ask you to break shame and guilt of every heart about Bible reading, Lord. We want you. We want to know who you are. We want to love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Can we give the Lord a praise tonight? Thank you, Lord, for your amazing, amazing word.